continue our look into uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We did not quite finish up with uh, chapter 5. Just wanted to make a few closing remarks about that. Let me just uh, kind of lead us into that by looking at some of the doing some of what we did talk about last week. And chapter 5 was all about, uh, you know, say church discipline, but it's really just about a church uh, being so concerned with honoring the Lord that when big, obvious things take place, that, that people are confronted, and if they will not repent, not do the obvious thing, then they have to be removed, keep the church pure. And so we saw that Christians are expected to maintain a certain level of morality. We are not free to use our humanity and sentiments as an excuse to do certain things and expect no one to judge us. We made it very clear that we're all sinners, that church discipline has involved things that are absolutely no excuse for. Not just, you know, well, we don't, I don't like women did something, so I'm going to try to see if I can't get them booted out of the church or anything like that. It's when obvious big things take place that we must maintain a reputation that we uh, love the Lord and we're going to put him first. And so the church is expected to excommunicate those who won't behave as Christians. So, again, it's not that someone's just struggling with something, but when it's a big thing, they refuse to repent, refuse to do what's right, then we must take, uh, after everything else is done to get them to come back, we must uh, remove them from our fellowship. And we talked about the three reasons for discipline are gross sin. If I, when I use the term gross sin, I mean big sin. Like in chapter 5, it was uh, adultery. And, and, and uh, you know, say, well, what about lying? Lying's not a gross sin. No. And, you know, we're, we all struggle sometimes with telling the truth, right? But if someone consistently, we, it turns out, is lying to everybody about something, and they've been doing it, it's a practice, and they continually do it, then that becomes a gross sin. Right? Well, they, we, I, they are deliberately lying to the church family or wherever, and they will not repent. They will not say, okay, look, I, I know I've done this is wrong, and I, I want to make things right. Then that, that becomes a gross sin. So it's not like, it's a pretty obvious, I think church discipline, the reasons for it are pretty obvious. So gross sin, serious heresy, and causing divisions. And so we dealt with some of those things. And uh, the points we made, the need for discipline to correct the sinner and perhaps save his soul, and then also to protect the flock, to maintain the testimony for the Lord's name. The method of discipline, he was to be removed, not just from the role, but to remove from the fellowship of the membership, and we'll deal a little bit more with that. And then the reason for discipline was kind of is goes back to the need of discipline. We were, the removal of sin, we should, I should say we removed the sin to be a lifelong pursuit. The removal of sin, I think I should have said the instead of we were sorry. Of sin is to be a lifelong pursuit so we might be conformed to Christ's image. So discipline is a necessary part of that when one refuses and made a profession for Christ and refuses to do what he's called to do in a public way that it must be dealt with. Um, so the, the last one I didn't get a chance to, and that is a, a chance to talk about, was the sphere of church discipline. And we see here in the latter part of chapter 5, only over those who profess to be believers. He says in verse 9, I wrote in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now you notice that the ESV, there's a line there. We would maybe put a parenthesis there. And that it's not until you get to verse 11, the latter part of verse 11, that we see the latter ended. So everything in between is parenthetical. If we skip that part, it would say, I wrote in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not even to eat with such a one. So he's explaining what that means, not to associate with them, not even eat with them. But verse 10 goes on to say, not at all, meaning sexually immoral of this world. So the parenthesis is 
when I say don't associate with those who need to be disciplined, I'm not saying that you are not to associate with lost people. They're, they're lost people. He said, otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. Right? That's what he goes on to say there. In uh, he, he describes uh, those kind of sins that one would have to be disciplined for. Greedy, swindlers, idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of the sexually immoral, the greed, idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So the sphere is we are dealing with those who profess to be followers of Christ, but not, but are consistently not living as followers of Christ. Verse 12 says, but what have I to do with judging outsiders? We don't expect anything of the world, but we do expect something of those who claim to be followers of Christ. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So the sphere of discipline, that the church has an accountability and an authority to talk of, to, to deal with those who claim to be saved which then includes anyone who would be not just a member of the church, but anyone who comes to our church, who, who fellowships with us, falls in that category. Uh, whether you uh, have you know obeyed in church membership or not, it doesn't matter because we're all accountable. You, you can't say, well, I don't want, I want to attend the church, but I don't want to be accountable to anybody. Well, you're already, you're already, that's the reason to be disciplined. You're already living outside of God's, Revealed will. We're in this thing together. We, we, you can't be, uh, uh, you can't submit to leaders and remain uh, outside the church, right? So, it, it, if, if you're coming to this church, it all applies to all of us from the pastors on down. And if we don't hold ourselves accountable to obey our Lord and to hold each other accountable, whether it be laziness or the excuse that, well, who are we to judge, which is a, re- lot, a reason why a lot of churches don't discipline is because, well, we don't want to come across as judgmental and, you know, I'm no better. Well, then let's just quit pretending to be Christians and let's disband, disband the church because evidently what we teach isn't true. God is really not able to transform any of us because we can't hold any of us accountable to maintain a reasonable, holy life, right? And of course, that's nonsense. No. If we've been given and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and been trans- and been made new creatures, we we sin, but we don't. We don't. It doesn't. Be, we don't live in it. We are able to say no to it, and we, and especially again, these, these big sins. Like, you know, no, this man in, in chapter five. It wasn't a case where, you know, I just happened to fall into bed with my father's wife. No, you deliberately made a choice to abandon whatever family you had, maybe a marriage you had, whatever, to to dishonor the Lord, to bring reproach upon the Christ. You deliberately made an effort to do that. You don't just do that accidentally. But you can see why it, it's a, another level of sinfulness that had to be dealt with. So having said that, those who do not claim to be God's child then, uh, as we just read, are not under our authority. And for time's sake, I'm, I'm not going to, to uh, um, go into a lot of this. Uh, I think some of it's obvious, but we have we are called to go into the world and to befriend them and to minister to them, to speak to them about Christ. So, we, But we don't fellowship with the, the lost in the sense that we're not close to them, we can't have Christian fellowship with them. But here he very clearly says that when now when a brother or sister who claims to be Christ to be Christ lives as the world does, now don't just remove take them off the roll, but don't eat with them. Don't fellowship with them. And that becomes a problem. A lot of people I, I know a lot of people who just will not obey them. And obviously, if it's your family member, it becomes very difficult. I'm not trying to under, you know, doubt that. 
But Paul makes it very clear here that eating was fellowship, especially in that culture. Eating was something, uh, a form of fellowship. And as I said before, what it's telling us primarily is you've got to make sure they understand that the church has seen evidence that calls into question whether you're really saved. So we can never, no longer treat you as a brother and sister in Christ. It doesn't mean you can't ever be around you. Obviously, if your husband, for instance, is put in discipline, you still got to eat with them, you live with them, and all that kind of stuff. But it's very clear that the fellowship is lost. Until, until there's repentance, fellowship is lost. And Paul couldn't be more plain there. And so we just, I just want to point that out. And then we'll move on so that I don't end up being uh, too late today. So let's just go to chapter 6. Now, in this section, we have another sin in the church that must be dealt with. Here they're taking each other to courts through legal to the secular courts. But we notice that Paul takes a little bit different approach. Here, he does not call for immediately immediate expulsion of the offenders, but he does call for immediate cessation of doing this. The point is that some things cannot be tolerated at all, as what we saw in chapter 5, while other things, there could be admonishment and instruction and a, it's a look, this, this is something that the, the principles of the Bible, I think, make it clear you shouldn't be doing. And there's opportunity to do better. And, and, and that kind of falls, I think, in this. Uh, you just see a difference in the degrees of sinfulness and the reaction to it. While in both cases, neither are following the word, as, he, as we'll see here. In chapter 5, it's blatant rejection. While here it's a little bit more subtle because it wouldn't necessarily be obvious that you shouldn't sue each other in a civil court. Now, Paul, in a sense, makes fun of them that they don't know this. And and as we go through this, maybe in your mind you're saying, okay, why would Paul say, don't you know that you shouldn't be doing this? Can can you think of reasons, and I'm going to deal with them in a second, can you think of reasons why... It should be obvious, even if we don't have specific instruction in, in, in the Word, as we do now in chapter 6, it should be obvious why this really isn't a good idea to sue brothers and sisters in the church, in the public courts, right, in the civil courts. So maybe think of that while we're going along here. Um, the Word has not to this point, forbidden this as such. But they should have been able to figure it out by principle. And that's what Paul is going to deal with. They were not walking consistent with their faith in that they are saying that they love the brethren, but they have failed to judge their actions in light of that. And so they're not walking in a biblical worldview. I love you, but... My love will not allow me to work things out with you in a godly way. I've got to go to a lost, to lost people outside the church for us with a relationship with Christ uh, to be able to work out our differences. So this on the surface, it should be pretty obvious something is wrong, right? So Paul is saying here it's sinful and if not dangerous to the saint and to the church, even though it's seen differently as blatant immorality, it's still a serious sin. I think we'll see why here as we go along. Just like in chapter 5, the Corinthian culture was part of the reason why they were sinning like this to start with, while they were going to court and not settling things in a godly fashion. The Corinthian culture led was grossly immoral, which so you can kind of understand the, the Corinthians, the difficulty they had in putting away immorality, but we learn uh, from history that the Greeks loved to go to court, and that it, evidently it was a favorite pastime just to go and watch the proceedings of civil courts. From about the age of 16 on, you could be called to be part of a jury and sometimes these juries numbered up to around 6,000 members, as uh, I've seen. Often they would stand around in the morning, 
open to be called to jury duty, just like some people would stand around hoping to perhaps be hired for that day to work, people would just would be hired or want to just be called to jury duty. I find astounding, but that's just the culture they were raised in. So they were suit happy. Well, much like we are today. I mean, we've kind of become a, a culture of litigation. And this might be uh, something to think about. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, what's going on in Corinth, and you know, we feel like we've got to just sue everything that's got to be settled in court. And, and we'll get to why this becomes a problem, especially with Christians. But just because suing someone is acceptable in society doesn't automatically mean that it's the right thing for us to do in all cases. And I'll try to deal with that as we go along. But let me also say then that from the start, Paul is not saying that a Christian can never use the courts and the laws of the land and, and even sue. In fact, he uses the laws of the land. And he does so for his own advantage. Remember, he was uh, about to be beaten. And as a Roman citizen, that particular, that scourging was, was unlawful. And he threatened them with legal action if they did it. You know, so it, again, we can keep it in its context. He did it primarily, not just for his own advantage, but that he might give the gospel and be free to give the gospel. So it wasn't totally, I don't think, selfishness. Um, he threatened, though, this, um, this legal action. And his point is, is is then to bringing each other to law and letting the world settle disputes among saints makes no sense for a couple of reasons. Now, sometimes it's forced on us by another Christian, but most of all, if not in all cases, someone has got, for Christians to be suing each other, someone is sinning. Someone is doing something they should not be doing. Uh, you know, for Christians not to be able to work it out, to be doing something that would cause somebody to sue you, something's wrong, right? I mean, we can at least say that much at the very beginning. Another thing that this chapter had, that these chapters have in common, that is uh, five and six, is just the obvious way the church was mimicking the world instead of mimicking Christ. If one walked into the Corinthian church, I think he would be hard-pressed to see how knowing Christ really made any difference in the way that they lived and got along with each other. And not being able to deal effectively with one another in love, in the love of Christ, but instead having to go to loss to settle differences couldn't be any more demeaning to the cause of Christ than what was going on in chapter 5 and I mean, there's different sins, but at the end of the day, how embarrassing is it that we've got to have lost people settle differences among Christians? And that's one of the things Paul says. Does he say there in, is it verse 7? Um, you, you've already, you've already been defeated. As soon as you've done that, it, it's over. You've lost the battle. Whatever you think you're going to gain in the suit, you've already lost. So you can hear disdain, disdain in Paul's words. He's clearly offended that this is going on, I think, for good reason. I would uh, further apply this, that if we have questions or have been offended by a brother and walk away and refuse to deal with one another in Christian love, if we don't deal with things and give opportunity for things to be made right, to, uh, to, 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 in other words, if uh, we have a dispute in the church, and I don't like the things the way it happened, and I just hightail it out of here, and I refuse to think things right. It's the same sin. I mean, you haven't gone to court over it, but you haven't dealt with it properly, right? You you haven't let the love of Christ and the Word of God and the the church come together to work it out. You've just taken the easy way out. It's kind of like you've got divorced. You've taken the easy way out. If, if you divorce your spouse because you, you don't you know, have problems. <clears throat> and, and sometimes, to be honest with you, I have, you know, I'm, I've been in the ministry for over 25 years now, and, and I sometimes have to battle this. Is Lord, am I wasting my breath to say, look, when there's problems, here's how to deal with them. 
Because I know that it's just a matter of time, and it's happened over and over again, that somebody is going to do exactly the opposite of what I try to show through Scripture and have a problem. But I, I have confidence in God that His Word will not return unto Him void. And even if I speak the truth and I give biblical advice and it's rejected, well, the Lord will use that in, in judgment of them in one way or another. I know that the, I have confidence in God and I know that it's my duty to speak the truth. Whether it gets ignored or not, it's not my, that's the Lord's business. <clears throat> but I, I'm just, I guess I'm just, thinking out loud, you know, it's, it's rough sometimes when we don't take God's word seriously. And I try to be faithful to preach it. And I know relationships are messy. I, I, we're all sinners. And I know that it's not, it's no easy thing to love me. You know, you probably find it hard to believe, but just ask my wife. I know that. But there's a right way to deal with our problems. And that's one of the things Paul's saying here. This is not the right way. Right? <clears throat> and so the first, in the first five verses, his first point is to say this is a shame. It's a shame for people, to, Christians, to do this. Not only is it a bad testimony, but think about it. It assumes that no one in the church is spiritually minded enough and godly enough to have the wisdom to settle things to begin with. So, you know, I don't have any confidence in the leadership, in the church family, so I've got to go to the courts. So what is it saying about the church itself? And to be honest with you, you know, I, I feel like Jeff and I have enough years experience to be able to to give good advice, but if there was a problem in the church, I think I, I think I can speak with Jeff here. If there are others in the church, not just Jeff and I, but there are others in the church who I think really have something to help in a matter, they would be brought into the, the situation to make a judgment. But to go to the courts says I've got no confidence in my Christian brothers and sisters to be able to settle this. And I will not abide by their decision necessarily if it doesn't go my way. And we'll deal with, because at the end, he kind of, I think, deals with this attitude at the end. And the dispute itself really is the least important thing here. He really, he only kind of in passing mentions the fact that it, it seems to be a, a, a dispute about someone who's been defrauded, you know, so someone's perhaps has been uh, stolen from in some way. But that's really not the issue here. And we'll, we'll talk about why here at the end. <clears throat> so even, I think, a small church, any church, should have the ability to come together and say, look, we can offer uh, a, a ruling in this. And it's far better to accept that ruling, even if it doesn't go your way, than to go out into the world and ask their advice, and, and, and perhaps the same, it, 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 it ends up being the same anyway. We know that sinners in the church will make headlines in the world because they love it when Christians don't act like Christians, right? And here they are deliberately airing their dirty laundry in front of the world. So one of the first questions each one of us must ask ourselves, do we care enough about the reputation of Christ and the church to be willing to obey the Lord in this matter, because obviously there are those who don't. I don't want to know what the leadership says. I don't want to know what the church, as it comes together, would say. I'm either out of here or I'm going to go to the world, and I'm going to let the world take care of it. And as we're going to see here in a moment, that takes faith in the Lord, to submit to somebody else's ruling, but in a sense it does if you go to courts too. Have you ever watched those ridiculous shows, you know, I'm maybe you guys like I uh, Judge Julia, what's what was People's Court? Remember that that's been on for fifty years. At the end of the day, when the when the judge knocks the, the gavel and makes a decision, that's it. You've got to abide by it. So would it be better for the church to make that decision than some Someone who maybe is not even saving care less, let alone the, the, 
dishonor the Lord's name? Is that so unreasonable? Five times he says, do you not know? Like he said, this is the first time this has been specifically addressed. So how can he say, do you not know? Well, part of the reason is because the, the, the whole issue here first in the Corinthian church is they're wiser than Paul and they're all caught up in worldly wisdom and he kind of pokes fun again here. He's done it a few times. You're so wise, how come you haven't, why can you not see what's going on here? How can you not see? And notice in verses 5 and 6, they weren't wise enough to figure this out on their own. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle this dispute? You're so big on wisdom, and yet here you seem to be pretty foolish. Now let me say, if our mindset is that I have rights, and they're due me no matter what is going on, I'm, I've got rights that I deserve, then you might as well close the book and say go home because, you know, quit pretending. In other words, if, if, it's, if you're not willing to submit even to wrongs being done, and we'll get to that, for the sake of Christ, but you've got to have your own way, then there's no way you're going to, this is going to mean anything to you, and I understand that. What we need to be doing is what as a Christian is my responsibility before the Lord and the church to honor his name. It's kind of like, you remember John F. Kennedy's statement, ask not what my country can do for you, but what can you do for your country? And it just, I think that's good. It shows you how in 60 years, how far we've gone from even you with know, him, right? But, but that's just it. The, the question here, I think behind what Paul's saying is that if you're all about Christ, then you're not all about getting your own way, no matter the consequences, right? And going to the courts is basically saying, I must have my rights, and I will go to the world to get them. But when you think about it, what rights do Christians have? Do Christians have? Well, verse 7 seems to say none in one sense. You've already defeated. Why not suffer wrong? In other words, if at the end of the day, you don't get your way, and if at the end of the day, you end up losing something, uh, is that all bad? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. As, as a Christian, who, as we saw in chapter 3, have been given everything in Christ, and, and we shall have everything in eternity, if I get defrauded, if my brother and sister take advantage of me, and it might be sin, and they take something that, that really is mine, at the end of the day, it's pennies compared to a, a vast fortune in Christ. Put it in perspective, Paul said. Think about this. Why are you holding on to this at all costs, at the cost of the reputation of Christ? <clears throat> First Peter 4.1 We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I think that's behind what he says there in chapter 7. And so, can we expect to be treated better than Christ was treated? And Paul was Paul already told us how his life's been going physically. Who are we to expect anything better? If we walked around meditating on the fact that Christ died for me, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I think Paul's saying you wouldn't be acting like this. And he says, where's the wisdom? Now, again, having said that, let me thank God that we have in, in American constitutional rights. They are important. It's important to guard them, to use the courts as we can. We, we see that today, how these rights are being taken away from us. And, and, and the only recourse is to take them to courts, and, and that's all well and good. There are many who want to take away our freedoms. But Paul isn't teaching that we can never go to court and use the law. But these are matters of, of money, of defrauding, of, of maybe get, not getting paid or theft. Something. These are minor matters between brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so we've got to be careful about demanding rights over certain in certain areas, certainly in, in, in the kingdom of God. Some make the point that Paul isn't saying Christians can never sue one another because some things such as felonies and abuse and, and things like that must be to some degree handled in the courts, uh, assuming they're not corrupt. You know, so it's not, sometimes you've got to because the sin is so great and there's no repentance and, and, and or sometimes it doesn't matter if there's repentance or not, murder or, you know, rape and child molestation. Those things are going to the court whether you like it or not. Just don't come to the leadership of the church thinking that somehow we're going to hide that. That, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Well, I hope not, and we'll be happy to deal with you spiritually, but you're going to the police. The police are going to be notified. So, you know, we want to keep that in mind, because there's a, a lot of churches got themselves in trouble thinking that they can handle it themselves, and that doesn't work. But this is a matter that if you don't get justice, it's no big deal in the grand scheme of things, because we know there is a judge, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I can give it to the Lord, I will do it. So Paul in verse 2 continues by reminding us that those who have been regenerated have been given a new nature that comes with true light and wisdom. So we alone understand the matters of life and eternity. Who else would you want to get help from? And so a second point is that they have lost sight of who they are. We know what life is all about. It's about self-denial to some degree. Reward is in the next life. We're all going to stand before the Lord. True justice will be meted out only in the day of judgment. Never fully in this life anyway. So why do we act like everything's got to happen in this life? You say, well, I don't see all that in these verses. <laughs> well, read more carefully. Take your time. Think, of, think these, these things through. Matters of offenses and personal property between saints are in a very real sense trivial when compared to the matters of the eternal matters of the kingdom of God, of the reputation and testimony of the church and so forth. Gaining the world, which is what going to the courts is seeking, gaining the world but losing one's soul can't be compared to dying to the world and inheriting eternal life. So he's implying, you guys, why can't you guys learn to get along? It's kind of like we say to the young children who refuse to give up their one toy they've got in a room full of toys. As soon as that, that other child has that toy, I don't care what else is available, I want that. It's the same principle. You're, you're, you, you've completely lost sight of what's important. Now, the one question that arises here is, when he says, do you not know that, the, that you will judge the angels? And that, like, where did that come from? Right. Well, there's a few places here where we get this. Um, but again, he's saying this, this is part of the reason why this is such a, a bad sin. In Matthew 19, 23, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, obviously speaking to the disciples there. Uh, and, and of course, one of those was Judas, so I think it's a, more, it's a little bit figurative. There's a sense in which the saints of God shall reign with Christ. Revelation 3.21 certainly brings that out. The one who conquers will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also confidently sat down with my father on his throne, so there's so so there's something, but they the Corinthians wouldn't even know these passages probably at this point, and so we know something's going on here, but what maybe specifically would they have known that Paul would have said, "Don't you know?" And I think the answer is in Daniel seven nine, following. And we've actually looked at this when we're going through the book of Revelation. As I look, thrones were placed in the ancient thrones, plural. We can see here, this is a day of judgment. There's throne, not the throne, which obviously the Lord is on his judgment throne, but thrones are 
ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure gold. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So there are thrones, but I think the idea here is that the saints of God are sitting with Christ in the day of judgment, and the books are open. We take part in the judgment, not of each other, but the judgment of the nations. Um, so, uh, verse 22, And until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, that's us. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. Now, there's a lot there, and I don't think anybody fully can appreciate everything that's going on there, but, you know, I think Paul could at least be saying, look, we're taking part in the judgment of the lost in the day of judgment, and yet you're going to the very ones you're going to someday judge and letting them judge you. Something's wrong. So his point is that even now we possess the gifts and the wisdom to judge right and wrong. So we saw that in chapter 2, where we've been given the mind of Christ. If you have the mind of Christ, how can you not figure out how to take care of, of, of these matters and going to go to a lost person to do it? So Paul assumes that they do know it and that their actions are completely contrary to their theology. If these saints are going to reign with Christ and participate in the judgment of the world, how in the world can these Corinthians turn to the unsaved for judgment? If the righteous will judge the unrighteous at the second coming, how can the Corinthian Christians now be looking for the heathen to judge the righteous? It's it's just pretty obvious. And he pokes fun that in their wisdom they haven't figured that out yet. Paul asked the Corinthians, if there is not one wise person among them who is qualified to judge the dispute among the two Corinthian saints. So what a blow to their pride. These ones who profess to be wise aren't so very wise. These are the ones so quick to judge Paul and find him wise. And all the other problems that we're seeing in this book. These very saints can proudly follow one leader and condemn the rest. But where are the Corinthian critics when they're needed? Why can't they figure this out? Why can't they judge this correctly? Why is no one able to judge in such mundane matters? Instead, the saints are at one another's throats as all the world looks on. The Corinthians were great at being judgmental, but they were not good at being judges or having spiritual discernment in that sense. So why is it so difficult to settle, settle such things in the church? Well, we all know why. Such relationships are painful, they're dirty, they're messy, they're uncomfortable. We don't like other people knowing about our the sin in our lives. We've been duped by the world that no one should know about my private problems with me, no one should interfere with them. And there's, you can't find that in the scripture. What happens is that we would sooner live in open and destructive sin rather than getting help in the church because outwardly we look like good Christians and that's more important than actually honoring the Lord in our lives. But what we've got to remember is how is God looking at all this? You know, we're so proud we don't think anybody should interfere in in what's going on in my life to the point that we will... Walk off into destruction and all sorts of bad things because of our pride. We'd even go to the world. But an attitude where I will take care of myself, even if it means standing before the enemies of Christ for advice, is uh, dishonoring to the Lord. I mean, notice here in verse 4, he calls them those who have no standing in the church, these courts. They have no spiritual light. They're still in rebellion to Christ. And you're more willing to give them the decision than 
your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know you think, well, boy, if the church kind of knew some of the problems I'm having, you know, here with this person, that person, it, I'd be embarrassing. Well, embarrassment is never used as an excuse not to do the right thing. <laughs> Believe me, I don't like being embarrassed anymore than that next person. I know this is hard, but it gets right down to it. But what does Christ mean to us? To us? So to do this, he says, you're you're clearly failing in a relationship. You've isolated yourself from the church and family. You're, you know the, the church family, and it's an ungodly thing, and you become an embarrassment to the world. And he says you're already defeated. You've already suffered defeat. Now, right here is a good time to point out the obvious fact that all this necessitates a church accountability. We call it church membership, church accountability, submission to the church authority to one another from the pastor on down. No one's get this brief. So, you know, here's a prime example why you've got to have accountability. But we hope that it's a joyful submission to it. I never had a problem submitting to and being accountable to the church. It's it, it, to me, it's a safety thing, is it not? Isn't Paul saying that? You have a safety thing here because you've got godly people who can help you work things out. So legal rights are one thing. But to see this as an infringement on your rights, uh, you know, your duty for the Lord and each other is completely different. It's a completely different category. So he finishes up here in verse 7. It even gets more convicting. The first thing he says in this verse is that when we do this, as I said, he's all, we've already suffered defeat. We have succumbed to our pride and selfishness. We have discredited the power and wisdom of God. We have uh, diminished the, uh, the, the view of the church by the world. We've diminished the wisdom of God. And there's just no way to justify it. Just understand, he's saying, we have failed in some way to live a life that honors the Lord, but we have believed. Do this. When looking for victory over your brother, and that's what I think what he's saying here, you've already been defeated. In other words, it's the, the defeat isn't going to the courts. That that is defeat. But he said, really, he says you've already been defeated because you have always your brother and, you've been, and you're unable to work it out. You, there's already something wrong. And so the next phrase here in verse seven is that the attitude we should have. And the key to victory in these matters, it, uh, basically he says, we, do we believe anything the Bible has taught us? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat. And so he's, he's referring to things the Bible has already taught us. Why not rather suffer wrong? Didn't Christ say that that was going to happen? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong in the fraud, even your own brother. So you're already walking contrary to Scripture. Is he not saying that the loss of something or some pride now can't compare to what you have with Christ was waiting for you? Another way of saying this is that the loss of the uh, for the cause of Christ now is much greater than victory than you could ever gain in court. Are we not being told to think these things through before we push our will on anything? Going to court with a fellow believer is a no-win situation, is what he's saying, and you've already lost. The better way is if in the end of the day, the church rules against you, for instance. Take the loss. Um, It's better to take the loss because at the end of the day, what have you done? You have submitted to the church. You've obeyed the Lord. You've obeyed the Word, and even if you, you know, suffer a little bit for it, you've done the right thing, and God's going to reward you, right? Take the loss. It's better to be a victim than a victor in that case. Paul's saying it's better to be wrong. It's better to be defrauded because Christ's name has been exalted. Sometimes we have to take a loss, and we're almost done. Sometimes we have to take a loss. We have to be a victim for Christ's sake. And Christ said as much. We'll look at that in just a moment. 
Paul's already shown that that's how his whole life has been one of suffering and being the victim in a lot of ways. He's been doing it for years. It's part of what we give up for Christ. And so Paul's instructions to the Corinthian Christians can only be understood in terms that we have an utterly different value system than the world. When Jesus invited men to follow him, they were instructed to take up their cross daily and follow him. Jesus says, you're going to be mistreated. You're going to have to give up a few things. But the uh, uh, reward far exceeds it. On the cross of Calvary, our Lord was wrong. And this brought about our salvation. And so the very wrongful death of Christ, as Peter refers to, becomes a model of how we live. Servants, subject yourselves to your masters with all respect. Do not be not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. If you're a slave, look at your... You, you're, that's total humiliation in this life. You've given up so much. You know, all the things that, that, that would go on with that. Then he, uh, but he said, but why? How, what's the motivation? It's a gracious thing. Be mindful of God. What endures sorrows and suffering unjustly? For what credit is it if, if we were standing or beaten for it, we endure. But if we do good and suffer for it, and endure. This again can be applied to our, the situation in Philippians 6. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. So that should be all that matters. And then notice the motivation. For this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his death. He committed no sin, neither was the truth down in his mouth. He suffered. He was defrauded. Who are you? If, if it happens, you go to the church, you do the right thing, and if it still happens, it rewards in heaven. And I know what naturally goes through our minds here. Am I just supposed to let people walk all over me? I mean, let's face it. That, you know, that, that, that happens. We think about that a lot, perhaps. Well, I would say, first of all, that seldom really ever happens. At least not in our situation. It's, real, it's seldom that bad. But Paul is pretty clear here. So what if, if it happens? On the one hand, within the church community, it probably won't happen. Because the church, if it's being, uh, you know, doing right, will not let one saint take advantage of another saint. So I think in one sense, it's a, it's a, not really a, a worthy um, thought. After all, there is no reason for us to be treating each other badly to start with. But the greater principle is that if we are taken advantage of, if we do suffer loss, and that's what Paul, again, the practical aspect, we might not ever sue each other. That might not ever really be an issue. But verse 7 is where he says, this is why... You're, you're doing the suit to start with because you've never gotten to the point of realizing that you've been called to it in a situation where you might be taken advantage of. And if it's the case, uh, then so be it. He's put, he's pretty clear here. On the one hand, within the church community, this shouldn't happen as the church is an advocate so we don't take advantage of, uh, each other. After all, there's no reason for us to be treating each other badly to start with. But the greater principle is that if we are taken advantage of, if we do suffer loss, when there is no viable means to get justice, we know that justice is going to be served someday. So why in the world are you willing to destroy your reputation? And I think Paul pretty much has in his own life, said this is just the way Christian life is. But Jesus, and we'll close with this, he says, you have heard that it is said, I belong to the Jews. Well, there's justice, right? And under the law, remember, this is this is under a civil situation, there was justice to be meted out. But I say to you, you don't live, we don't live in, under the Old Testament uh, civil laws anymore. We live in Governments that often are going to be anti-Christian, anti-God, and are going to mistreat us, right? And a lot of people live in that. So he says, what you need to be worried about is not the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth situation, which is what's going on 
Corinthians, First Corinthians six, right? You know, I've got to have all my rights. Everything's coming to me. I say, you do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And if anyone would sue you and take you to your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Suffer loss. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who has borrowed from you. You have heard it said, that it is said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, or make the sun rise on the evil and the good, and the just So, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Um, if your your attitude is that this is the Lord's work, it's not about me, it's about the Lord, and if I'm defrauded, I'm defrauded. Uh, and, and so I think Paul is merely just repeating what Jesus has said. Christ has said we're going to be abused, we're going to be taken advantage of sometimes, and, and, it, and if it means the cause of Christ, then we've got to let it go. And at the end of the day, what real? What does real persecution look like? You know, because a lot of us think if someone doesn't like me, I've been persecuted. That's not persecution. Just because you, you know, you're not popular at work, you've been made fun of at work, or you know, you lost a friend. You know, if you think that's persecution, you hear you gotta think again. What reward are we looking for? The one now or the one next? Well, we need to close here, but let me just, I'll just read one paragraph and we'll be done. What reality are we living in? Is that, that's what Paul's saying, right? Can we suffer wrong and be okay and trust Christ to take care of it the way he wants? Can we take this passage seriously or not? Whose wrongs are we most concerned with? Those who, the wrongs against Christ, the wrongs against us personally. You know, and if we went around right now and asked each of us, are you willing to abide by the decisions of this church in matters, in disputes, could you honestly say yes? Or would you say, in your heart, you're saying, no. No, I'd rather go to the court system. Well, I think, I mean, it's telling, I think. Are you willing to suffer wrong for Christ and serve joyfully anyway? Or would you refuse to show yourself until you get your way and if you don't, we need to ask ourselves because at the end of the day, that's the part of the thing that's not. It's good. All right, let's better stop there.